Well, good morning, church. Uh, in 1844, uh, uh, an author named Alexandre Dumas published a book called The Count of Monte Cristo. It's this mammoth of a book. It's one of those classic works that uh, you might have been assigned to read in school. I was. Uh, I remember that summer. Um, I had no social life. It's 1,276 pages long. It's actually a decent movie for it now if you want to skip the book, but in this book, The Count of Monte Cristo, the main character is a man named Dantes. Dantes was living his life, he had the love of his life, and all of a sudden, his jealous best friend sets him up for a crime that he does not commit just so he can steal Dante's girlfriend. And he spends time in prison, he spends 13 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. And what did he do during those 13 years in prison? He didn't learn a new skill. He didn't learn arts and crafts. You know what he did? He planned out for 13 years his plot of revenge. 13 years of building a revenge plan to ruin the lives of those who ruined his. And at the moment he escapes prison, he gets to the point of this huge vengeance moment, and he says, how did I escape prison? With difficulty. And how did I plan this moment of revenge? With pleasure. This revenge was done with pleasure and enjoyment by Dantes. And as, as readers of this book or as the watchers of the movie, we kind of end up cheering this guy on, right? He's put in prison unjustly. He was put there wrongly, so we get revenge. But Dantes goes as far, and, and sorry to spoil a book from 1848, on, he goes to the point of killing his best friend. His 13 years of prison erupts into an act of violence. And he disguises it as honor. I believe there's a little bit of Dante's in all of us. Now I pray that we will not go to 13 years to plan out a plot against our arch, ne arch nemesis. But do you ever find pleasure when you're driving down the highway, a guy flies by you, cuts you off, and then five miles down the road he's pulled over by the police officer? Your chuckle says yes. There is... A lot of bitterness and revenge and pride and even a little bit of, ha-ha, finally they got you in all of us. And it's revealed during conflict or trials. The real us, the real stuff finally comes out of our heart, kind of when moments when we are pressed or we are wronged or someone says something that really gets us going. Right, when what we say when we are cut off in traffic does reveal something about us. Is it wrong they cut us off? Absolutely, but you are responsible for you. What comes out? When a family member offends us, how do we speak about them towards others in our family? That reveals something about us. Right? Dantes was, was wronged. It was unjust, absolutely. But his response to that injustice revealed pride and anger. What about us? Because we are going to live in a world full of conflict. People insulting us, people saying the wrong thing to us. We're going to have kind of spoiled relationships. What comes from our heart in those moments? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is correcting, he's rebuking the Corinthian church 
because in the midst of their church is some relational conflict. There are some members of the church suing other members of the same church over trivial matters, over some financial things, over the values of greed and pride and the idolatry of money and the worship of power. You have members turning against members, taking each other to court over money instead of striving for peace and forgiveness and reconciliation. When we are wronged, what is our response? What is our attitude? What comes to mind? For the church of Corinth, they responded sinfully in the midst of conflict. Let's look at this. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11. It's on page 954 of that pew Bible in front of you. 954. Once you find chapter 6 of the letter of 1 Corinthians, would you please stand in reverence for the word of the Lord? When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, you are incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have all lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, show us wondrous things today in your word. Spirit, help us. Amen. You may be seated. In the, in the city of Corinth, it was common for people of power and wealth to take the poor to court. The rich, though they had plenty of money, always wanted more money, and the court systems favored the powerful and the prestigious and the rich. So it was common in the first century to take someone to court over small matters. This was the way of the world, the way of Corinth, the way of, of Rome, all about power and money and prestige. Who is more powerful than the other person? And when you win a court case, you get power and you get money and you get prestige. So you become the one who is right. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians 6 not to criticize Corinth or Rome. He writes it to criticize the church in Corinth. Inside the church, Christians are taking other Christians to court over money. It says in verse 7 that the lawsuit he's talking about is about someone who defrauded another person. That's a problem. Defrauding is sin. Deceptively getting money from people is wrong. 
But Paul even goes as far to say that the believer who was the victim is as guilty because he took the matter to court. The church is not to be a place for the greedy, for the prideful, for the angry, for the vengeful, for the vengeful, but it's to be a place where we would prefer to rather be defrauded by a fellow believer than take a fellow believer to court. Right? The church is to be a different kind of place in the world in how we deal with conflict. Now, Paul, and, and not myself as the preacher this morning, I'm not going to tell you never to do a lawsuit. I'm not saying that. That's not what this is about. It's not saying don't ever have lawsuits. But this is saying that this decision was so simple in the eyes of Paul that based on the offense that was going on, based on what the church community should be, a lawsuit in the situation is ridiculous. Because of all places and all people in the world, churches should be able to handle internal conflict in a mature way. The church are a people saved by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus, given safety by Jesus, So shouldn't we be the ideal people to offer grace and forgiveness and safety to others? Think about it. We have have offended God. If you are a human being, you have offended God. We've sinned against him. We have opposed him. We have rebelled against him. We've resisted his commandments. There was relational conflict between God and us, and we were the offending guilty party. Our sin was directly against him. And what did God do? Actually, what did God not do? He did not take us right to court, show the evidence, be the judge, send us right away to hell, wipe us off the planet. He could have done that. We would have been guilty and said, that is true. I deserve this. But instead, God saw the charges against us. He felt the charges inside his own God's soul. And what did he do? He sought peace and reconciliation and grace with us. So he sent Jesus. There is no dysfunction or hurt or conflict between God and us if we have become a Christian. Jesus brought peace to us and grace and safety to us. Jesus became our mediator. So now there's no conflict and we can walk freely and safely with God in love and peace and fellowship because of Jesus. So Christians should be the people who model this same kind of costly reconciliation to one another. The same peace, the same forgiveness, the same safety, just how Jesus treated us, we are called to treat others in that same way. Our first instinct in these walls with these people who we belong to should be, how can I be Jesus to them? So Paul here is rebuking the church in Corinth for acting more like the world and how they handle conflict than how they act like Jesus. So in this text, Paul's going to call out this lawsuit mentality. He's going to correct them and rebuke them, but he does it first by beginning and by ending, by reminding the church who they are in Jesus. If you know who you are in Jesus, it actually frees you to forgive one another. If you remember who you are in Jesus, you can actually handle conflicts in a mature way. But the moment we forget who we are in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, we begin to handle conflicts poorly and disobediently and immaturely. So the context here is a lawsuit, but it speaks to all conflicts we're going to face in the church or even outside of the church. You might have a disagreement with a Christian even in this room today. You may disagree with something with the whole church and there's a conflict going on. Or maybe you have a family member who you just can't stand and you guys can never see eye to eye. This passage is going to speak into this. 
So here's the main point of the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 6. How we treat one another, especially during conflict, reveals if we truly understand who we are in Christ. How we treat one another, especially during conflict, reveals if we truly understand who we are in Christ. This passage reminds me of a sandwich. Stay with me here for a second, but the first three verses and the last three verses talk about the great identity we have in Jesus, what Jesus has given to us. He begins and ends by talking about who we are in Jesus, what we have in him. So it's kind of like the bread or the buns, right? Supporting the middle part of the passage. But without the bread, without the buns, you can't hold the rest of the sandwich, the rest of the argument. You need the top and the bottom to make sense of the middle. So if you don't know who you are in Christ, top and bottom, okay, then why would you handle conflict in a Christ-like way? You'd go like the world if you forget the top and the bottom. It's going to be messy, right? You try to eat a sandwich without bread, it's messy. So let's look by at the beginning and then the end, and then we're going to get to the, the matter at hand in the middle. So the first point here is our identity in Jesus. Paul's heard that one member is suing another member over money, so how does he begin? In verses 1 to 3, look at 1 to 3. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul's picturing these church members walking into court against one another and leaving up to someone else, a third party outside of the church to fix their problem. And Paul says, you are going to a judge in a courtroom to solve a trivial, as it says in verse 2, a trivial matter of life. And yet he says in verse 2 and 3 that these same Christians are one day going to be judges over the entire world and angels, and yet they can't figure this little thing out. Paul's telling us what other parts of the Bible have told us about future role of Christians. If you're a Christian, you have a bigger job than you even realize. In, in Daniel chapter 7, read that one day saints, Christians, followers of Jesus, are going to inherit the kingdom of God and are going to rule over. In Matthew 19, Jesus grabs his 12 disciples and says that they are going to rule on thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. Revelation 20 tells that there are thrones where the saints are going to sit and they're going to judge and now in 1 Corinthians 6 here, we're told that Christians or, or saints have a future role in judging. That when the end is here, when Jesus has returned, he's given Christians, he's given the church a role to judge the world. We will be with Christ and participate with him as he judges the world. I don't know fully what this looked like, but Paul wants us to see that firstly here in verse 2, that we as Christians are going to judge the entire world. He's going to give us authority. God's going to give us authority when we get to heaven to judge. Now, we have that authority not because you and I are wise in our own power, but because we are so in Jesus that you cannot separate Jesus from his people, that if Jesus is going to judge the world, we are there with him judging. And he's not saying, okay, I'm going to give you, Christian, this zip code to rule over. I'm going to give you this tribe or tongue or this nation. No, he says, I'm going to give you the entire world to judge. Christian, one day you're going to be in heaven 
and you are going to judge the world with Jesus. You're going to rule. You're going to have authority. We are so united to Jesus that when Jesus is going to condemn Satan and unbelievers and the wicked demons to eternal torment, there we are with Jesus doing that. That we will reign and we will rule and we have a future job of judgment over the world if we believe in Jesus. That's a big deal. I don't know what that really means in detail, but it's here throughout the Bible. And then verse 3 says that we are also here to, we're going to judge angels. So it goes from a really big calling of you're going to judge the entire world of everything. Now you're going to judge angels. And this still kind of blows our mind because we think of angels as being creatures of higher authority than us. They're kind of this mysterious creature. We think of them coming to talk to, you know, the Virgin Mary or Joseph. And we think these angels are huge, powerful creatures. And they are, but Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that we as Christians are going to rule with Christ and not the angels. That we have more power and we are actually better off than the angels themselves. So there's a sense that when we get to the heavens, we get to the new heavens, the new earth, we're going to have more authority than the angels, and we will take part in judging and casting out the rebellious angels like Satan to hell. So there's some mystery built in here, but Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, one day you're going to rule and you're going to judge all the world. You're going to judge angels, and yet you can't even judge and rule in this one small conflict in your church. God is going to entrust you with the world and you can't figure out how to handle a money issue. Like you in Christ will be a judge. So you can be a good judge now in your relationships. You can rule properly. You can be wise now in Christ. You will rule. So rule now. That's why in verse three, he says, if you will judge angels and you will judge the world one day, why are you leaving your conflicts up to the very world that one day you are going to judge over? Right? The church is bringing lawsuits up to worldly judges, the same people that these Christians are going to judge on the last day. So deal with this internally in your church. You have Jesus, and one day you're going to rule with him, so handle this now. You don't need the world for this trivial matter. The judge and ruler of all can take care of it. Friends, we have Jesus now. Yes, one day we're going to have him without distraction and all limitations will be gone. But we have the ruler Jesus, the wisdom of Christ, the power of Christ that we can handle conflicts in our own. We don't need the world to solve them all for us. Now, there's times maybe where you need to go to court and talk about things, but we're talking about trivial matters here. We have Jesus. We don't need to go to someone else outside of the church. It's as if a a major league baseball player like Babe Ruth shows up to your little league game and asks the coach for batting help. Like, that wouldn't happen. It's as if Jimi Hendrix walks up to me and says, Troy, I heard you took five guitar lessons when you were 12. Can you give me some help, please? We're going to judge the world one day, and we have Christ. Are we not equipped to handle relational conflict? We don't need to borrow the world's values of vengeance or power or greed to overcome someone. We will judge the people who love power and greed and vengeance one day in Christ. We don't need to join them now. We are in Christ. That's the first couple of verses here, but let's look at the last few verses in, in verses 9 
to 11. So we have our future role of what we're going to be doing, but Paul reminds us of who we are in Christ now, the work that's already finished. In verse 9 it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul shows the differences between those living in the realm of Christ and those living in the realm of the world. He lists a, a, a list of vices or sins, sexually immoral, the adulterers, the idolaters, the practicing homosexuals, the thieves, the greedy drunkards, a list of sinners and a list of sins. And he says, the world is defined by these sins and these practices. And these sins mentioned are very common in the city of Corinth and in the, in the empire of Rome back in the first century, and they're still pretty common today. And each of these sins, whether it be uh, drunkenness or homosexuality or stealing, reveals the values of the world. Someone who steals is one who believes that they deserve riches and wealth, no matter whose it is and no matter what God has said about it. It should be theirs. Right? For those who act on homosexual desires and practice it are those who say, what I want matters more than what God wants. Drunkenness. It says, it doesn't matter how much I drink, I'm in control of myself, I'm in charge, I do what I want. Each of these sins is mentioned because they're worldly and they're self-centered. Paul is saying that the church in Corinth here is acting like the world and these sins when they take each other to court over trivial things like money. They are acting worldly like what we call these big sins, they are acting like money matters most, like self-image and being right and the other person being wrong matters most, like power matters most. They are acting like the world acts, like all of the sins mentioned here. But Paul says, church, you don't need to act like the world or live out the world's values because in verse 11, he says, and such were some of you, you were those things, but now, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Before Christ, you were just like the world. But now you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. You were washed, you were selfish, full of sin, but you're washed as in you are made clean. Your sin no longer taints you. It's no longer part of your identity. The world's pursuits are no longer yours. You have this eternal fresh start in Jesus. You've been made clean. And then you've been sanctified. You're not just made clean to be neutral. You have been sanctified. You have been made holy by God, the Spirit is in you, and you have a new heart, and you have new de desires, and new values, and a new status. When He sees you, when God sees you, He sees you as sanctified, as holy, as righteous. The one-time act here of sanctification, of being made holy. And He says, you've been justified. Justified. That means that God from the high court, highest court of heaven has shouted and declared his verdict that you as a Christian are righteous. People can have books and papers full of evidence of your sin and God says, he's made clean, he's sanctified, he is right. 
This is our identity in Jesus. It says in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit, this is who we are. Because of what Christ has done on the cross and the resurrection and what the Holy Spirit has done in us, this is our identity. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. In other words, you have everything your soul could ever desire in Jesus. So why would Corinth need to try to show its power and wealth by engaging in a lawsuit? We are no longer people defined by power or wealth or prestige. Those are not what we are here for. We are actually saved from those values. That's been cleansed and washed away. We have the approval of God. So why do we need the approval of others by getting more money or wealth or status? Why do we in our pride need to be seen as being right all the time when God has already declared us right? Paul is saying that Corinth has forgotten who it is in Christ, and thus we allow the worldly values of pride and greed and status to creep back in. That's why members are suing other members. They've returned to to return to their old identity, and they've neglected their oneness in Jesus. The moment we stop remembering what Jesus has done for us, we slip back into sin. We forget we've been saved from the values. We forget that we don't exist for ourselves. But we as Christians declare with joy, I do not belong to myself, but I belong to the Lord. We forget that we don't need to be made right in the eyes of the world because we're right in the eyes of God. We forget. And we kind of go into this spiritual panic of trying to accumulate stuff and be, have riches and have power, have wealth, win this argument because we feel like we need to be satisfied. We forget and we panic. This reminds me of, of, of roller coasters. Right, when I'm on a roller coaster and you're climbing up that first big hill, all of a sudden you're about to get to the top and I have that little moment of panic and fear. And then I feel the seatbelt and I feel that little secure bar. I, I shake it a couple of times to make sure it's not going anywhere. And then I remember, oh yes, I'm safe. I'm secure. I'm strapped in. Everything's going to be okay. Friends, we don't have to panic in this world and think we have to be right or have the most power or the most prestige or keep up with the world because we are safe and secure in Jesus. The moment we forget that, we sin. We have all we need in Jesus, his approval, his forgiveness, his cleansing. We have a future with God that is so bright. So why would we give that up and act like it's not ours? So remembering who we are in Jesus, remember what Jesus has done for us, frees us from treating one another poorly or pridefully. The only medicine for your bitterness or your anger or your pride or your greed, it's not a self-help book, it's not, this is not, it's the gospel is what it is. The moment you want to lo- you want someone to lose or the moment you want someone to fail or when you get so angry when someone's name is even brought up around you, the medicine is the gospel. Because instead of being bitter towards you, God saved you. Instead of wiping you out, God held you up. Instead of you going down in flames, Jesus cleansed you and he claimed you. So the gospel frees us to reconcile and to solve conflict and forgive one another. This will show the world that the church is a special and a beautiful place. This passage in 1 Corinthians 6 is essentially telling us what we should not do. Because this goes against Jesus. Instead, we are to remember who we are in Jesus, what we will do with him in eternity, and let that impact our present. So what do we do now? It's the second point, the last point. 
How do we treat one another properly in the midst of conflict? Our treatment of one another. Look at verses 4 to 8. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Paul says in verse 5 that this church should feel ashamed over this. Instead of reconciling in the church, they're now in a court for all the world to see. And Paul says in verse 7 that no matter who wins or loses in this courtroom, both parties have lost. To have lawsuits with another Christian here is already a defeat for you, is what he says. As in not only does the world see that the church is no different than the world, but also your own church is now not going to be able to live in the harmony it is called to live in. This is a lose-lose. Paul describes this lawsuit in verse 6 as brother against brother. Don't worry past that too quickly. Brother against brother. This is language used to show the intimate and the family relationship we are called to have in the church. We at CBC are a family of God. We are the church. Christ is the head We are the body. We're so connected to each other. We are not to be separated. So when there is a conflict or a problem, we are to seek resolution and peace for the sake of the whole body. To have a unified body seek to be divided is a tragedy. It's something to grieve over. Even if just two members of the church are fighting, that's a tragedy because we're to be united. Because in Jesus, all of us are reconciled to God together. We are to be reconcilers like Jesus to one another. We are to be people who prioritize and live and breathe grace and safety and fresh starts and mercy and love, not people of pride or power or resentment or vengeance or division. That's the opposite of how Jesus dealt with us. So we should deal like Jesus to one another. So when there is conflict, we seek reconciliation. That means we seek peace and unity and harm and going back in the right direction. So any bitterness that we have towards someone else in this church, for example, is an emergency that we need to handle. There's hurt. We need to find the medicine of the gospel quickly. In verse 5, Paul says in a rhetorical way, he says, Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers. Paul says, we've given you a full church of people who are wise and experienced and mature in the Lord. And if you get to a point in your life where there's conflict or there's resolution, or the conflict or there's strife and you need resolution or reconciliation, there are people all around you who can help, who've experienced the same reconciliation from Jesus, who can help guide you. We have people here with faith and knowledge and character and experience and spiritual gifts. And Paul's saying, why run to the court of law when you can run to the court of Christ that is the church? Friends, if you have a problem with someone in your church family or in your life, even if they are the ones who are in the wrong, you have the role of being the Christ-like, loving, 
peaceable, pursuing person to seek reconciliation. You can't make them follow through. You can't make them accept reconciliation, but you can try to pursue as God has pursued us. And if you need help, as this passage says, we are here to help. If you need wisdom, you have church members nearby here. If you don't know where to go, please reach out to the elders each week, okay? Oftentimes you you might think, be sitting in a pew, I'm the only one with the problem. If I come to the office, they're all going to judge me, okay? I walk into the office at 9 a.m. to work, and I have loads of problems personally, right? But then we also have people who come in with conflict situations who need wisdom about financial stuff. You know, they've gone through maybe some messy marriages. There's counseling going on. There's advice being given. It could be something small, something big. And we look at that as an opportunity to say, we are the family of God together. But I want to encourage you to take your conflict, take your bitterness or your anger that you feel towards someone and get help with it. Because what that does to us is it eats us up at the core. Bitterness, anger, conflict that's not handled is essentially like a spiritual cancer. What cancer does is it kills your own body from within your own body. It's attacking itself. When we let anger or bitterness or even just deep disappointment in someone settle in us, it's going to ruin us. It will. Paul wants Corinth to trust the church body that Jesus has given to them to help them solve this issue. So if you have this in your own life, will you do the same? Is there someone maybe you avoid here at church? Is there someone here that you disagree with so much of their view on something that you are bitter toward? Will you be like Christ and pursue them and talk? Ask for forgiveness. Seek out peace. Start a conversation. Because you and I, we did not pursue Jesus when we were in sin. He pursued us. We only love God because God first loved us. Can we do the same? Don't wait and, hey, I'm going to let them make the first move. No, you go with the grace of Christ to that person. You know, we as elders, as the pastors here, we never want to come off as being unreachable. If you have an issue with someone in the church, come to us. If you have an issue with us, come to us. If you disagree or you're concerned about something in the church, we want to talk and listen and hear. We want there to be no mental or spiritual bridge between anyone in this church. But I truly believe that one of the, um, the things that our society is really going to suffer from in the next few decades is the inability to handle conflict. Okay, we live now in a world where most of our conversations are happening through text message or email. So we never actually have to face a human being face to face. So there's no tones being addressed. You can have a lot of confidence behind a keyboard that you maybe wouldn't have in person. Right? And if something goes wrong in our job, we can quit that job and find another one. Or if we don't like this at the church, instead of talking about it, we can move on. It would be transient. But will we at CVBC be a people who, even when it is hard, seek reconciliation like Jesus has sought with us? Because Paul says in verse 7, It's better for you to be defrauded and lose money and suffer wrong than for you to take your brother or sister to court. Can you say this honestly? I want you to think about this. Would you be okay, spiritually, to lose the $1,000 and just say, I'm going to seek peace instead? That's a difficult decision for us. But where's our worth? Where's our identity? Where's our value? Is it rooted in money or power or status? Or are we in Christ, the, the church, the apple of God's eye, that we would even go to the length of suffering and putting up with hurt and weakness and different personalities because we are saved together? 
Jesus in Matthew 5, 24 says that before you come to the altar to worship, if you realize you have something against your brother, put your objects of worship down and go run and fix it with that brother. Why? Because bitterness and anger will affect even our worship of God. Will we deal with it? So I want to finish by being really practical. Let's say you have someone here even in this church or someone in, this, in your family that there's a lot of conflict or bitterness or anger to. I want to give you four really quick steps just for a minute. How do you handle conflict in the church? Number one, you go to that person and you do not delay. I'm going to go sleep on it. No, don't sleep on it. God did not delay in coming to you. Go to that person. Be direct. Number two, be honest and repent if necessary. If you know you have wronged someone, apologize for that wrong. Go be honest and repent. Number three, if you need help, bring in another brother or sister in the faith if necessary. If there's some dysfunction going on even in church, bring in someone else if necessary to be kind of a third party, a mediator, right? Jesus was our mediator between God and us. But fourth, and this is the hard one at times, after this is resolved, live in gospel harmony with that person, which means they're wrong things that they have done to you. I'm not saying you have to forget it, depending on what it is, right? We can talk about that, but you need to forgive them and treat them how Christ has treated you. So you don't avoid them. You don't walk around in bitterness. You seek out love and grace and peace. Go to that person. Be honest and repent if necessary. Bring a brother or sister if necessary and live in gospel harmony with that person. Ephesians 2.14 For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did not hold our sin against us, but as Psalm 103 says, that you have tossed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And now you are nothing but full of steadfast love and mercy and compassion for your children. Lord, I pray that we, get to, we have opportunities to uniquely demonstrate this love and mercy by forgiving those who have hurt us, by seeking out reconciliation with those we need to. But Lord, let us be overwhelmed with the grace that your son Jesus has brought to us, that we are no longer in war against you, but we have peace. So Jesus, let us sing out of thankfulness for reconciliation with, with God. In the sweet name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.